This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. This week, an Orleans Parish School Board committee recommended denying several tax exemption requests worth almost $3 million from Folgers Coffee Company under the controversial ITEP program. New emails obtained by the ACLU are providing more information on how the New Orleans Police Department uses facial recognition technology after denying they've done so for years. And it was quite a year. We'll look back at the big news stories of 2020. Those stories, insight, and analysis coming up on Behind the Lens. On the podcast this week, government and cultural economy reporter Michael Isaac Stein. Hi, Michael. Good morning. Education reporter Marta Jusen is here. Hi, Marta. Hi, Carolyn. And Lens editor Charles Maldonado. Hi, Charles. Good morning. So, Marta and Michael, you reported on a story together this week. A committee of the New Orleans Parish School Board voted this week recommending the city deny Folgers six tax exemption requests, totaling about $2.9 million in local property taxes dedicated to schools over 10 years. The New Orleans City Council is expected to vote today on whether to give the city's approval for the exemptions, which are worth roughly $25 million in total local property tax breaks over 10 years. That includes taxes that go to the schools, the City of New Orleans, the Sewage and Water Board, and several other local government agencies. So, Michael, give us a primer on the ITEP program. How does it work? Sure. Yeah. So it's called the Industrial Tax Exemption Program. Um, And basically the the idea behind it is to incentivize um, businesses to invest in their properties. So specifically to invest in their properties to either increase production or create jobs. So, you know, this can fall under a number of categories, anything from, you know, updating um, and renovating your, your building to adding new, you know, expensive equipment. And again, the idea being that um, the state will allow you to skip out on your property taxes or a certain portion of your property taxes um, for up to 10 years um, to kind of incentivize that investment in the property. Now, it's come under fire because property taxes are are almost always levied at, at the local level. So the state was always in charge of, of granting these exemptions. But the end result was that local governments were losing out on money. In 2017, um, the Advocate did some great reporting, and and they found that between 2000 and 2016, the program had cost local governments about $1 billion on average every year in revenue. And so, again, the the, the big criticism, I mean, there there were a few big criticisms around that time of the program, but, but one of them was that, again, the state was granting the exemptions and local governments um, were kind of having to, to bear the brunt of, of the revenue loss. Um, you know, the advocate also did some great reporting at the time about you know how some of these companies that were granted some of the biggest exemptions um, had been slashing jobs over the years. So that that's some background on, on the controversy. Um, around that time, the rules um, began to began to change to give local governments um, more control. So. Um, basically now the state can approve the exemption, um, but now it goes down to local taxing bodies who can choose if they want um, to reject the exemption. Now, there has been some rule changes in the past year that give companies more of a right to appeal um, local denials. It's a little bit murky on exactly how that works. I think that there are some questions about what the rule change earlier this year actually means. But the broad level here is that local governments have been able to retain some more control over this, um, although there's some questions about how um, 
to what extent that control um, is in local hands. So the denials actually have teeth until this recent um, a- appeals process. They, they, if you yeah, deny it, locally, it's just over. So just quickly, the, the rule that was passed at uh, the, the State uh, Board of Industry and Commerce, which, who, 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 which is the body that grants um, the approvals on the state level, they passed a new rule that gives companies the right to appeal if they are rejected by a local taxing body. So that could be the city council or a school board based off of rules that are, um, that are contradictory to the state ITEP rules. Um, now, it's a really broad rule um it hasn't really been litigated so there's some questions about what that actually means why there's such a concern is that when this rule was created or right before um john bell edwards had been um campaigning for his re-election um, as governor and um one thing that he had said to business groups was that he wanted to kind of reduce local government's ability to reject these exemptions based off of anything at the time i'm you know martin knows more about this but this school board here um, had been flirting with the idea of creating a rule that just automatically rejected um, all ITEPs. So um, again, it, it was a rule that was created. I don't think we know exactly what it means in practice. I don't think any of those appeals have actually been granted, um, but there have only been a few this year from what I understand. All right. So Mar- Marta, what happened at the school board committee meeting? So the um, school board, like Michael said, back in 2018, um, actually thought about just de facto denying all ITEPs, um, but that was not received well by the business community. So they came up with a set of four qualifications or criteria that any ITEP would have to pass. These six things that Folgers wants, these six tax breaks that Folgers wants don't meet all four of those criteria, which um, the criteria talk about job creation, they talk about where a development or a plant or an upgrade is located, things of that nature. So this didn't meet the school board criteria. And I actually don't know if that's what Michael was talking about, where that type of criteria is what would be questioned versus the state regulations. But um, that the the school board decided to deny them based on the fact that it didn't meet the criteria and the fact that it doesn't want to lose any more money during the pandemic. The fact that they're denying, how much teeth does that have? None yet, because it hasn't gone to the full school board. That that will happen today. Today, so you know, as as I, I as I seem to note every week, we're <laughs> recording this on Thursday. Won't come out until Friday. Um, so later today, the school board will be meeting, and this is this is on their agenda. I think it actually will be interesting that the council is going to meet before the school board. So Michael can tell us more about what he expects to happen at the council meeting. But every member voted against it at the school board committee meeting on Tuesday. So it's going to be interesting to see if anything that happens at the council meeting uh, factors into the school board meeting later tonight. They are also the number one largest recipient of the ITEP tax break in the city. I'm saying this from memory, but I want to say upwards of $100 million over the course of the program um, since they started receiving ITEP in in the city of New Orleans. So. Um, Folgers is one of the bigger ones. I don't know if it's one of the bigger ones in the state, and I suspect it's probably not because I think oil and gas and the energy industry, which is you know more heavily contra- concentrated in other parts of the state than New Orleans, tend to get larger ITEP uh, tax breaks than, than something like Folgers, but it's definitely the, the number one ITEP recipient in the city. Wow. This is a little bit of a tangent, but just to kind of talk about how ITEP works, and this wouldn't work for Folgers in this situation since the um, 
the plants are actually located in New Orleans East and they're not movable. They're fixed, obviously. Um, but the first ITEP um, tax exemption that the school board denied, and they've only denied two, was for Bollinger Shipyards, and this was in 2018. And they denied it because it didn't meet their criteria. And then later, Bollinger attempted to get this tax break in a different parish because it was a movable dock that they were seeking the tax break for. It's such an interesting concept of getting approved by one taxing body and attempting to move to another. Yeah. And in Folger's case this week, if I remember correctly, several of the developments that are up for an ITEP approval are, have already been completed. Four of them. Four out of six were already completed, were started in 2018, finished in 2019 by the latest, um, and two others have already begun. So yeah, all six investments have, are either completed or are already underway. So it's not like you can take back these investments now. I think this has become a lot more of um, almost like an, an emotional thing for people that I've spoken to about it. I mean, I've had a couple of people in interviews now about this specific ITEP start crying, um, which is surprising when you're dealing with a, you know, it's, it's a generally dry issue. It's a tax exemption. It's an industrial tax exemption program. Um, I, I think that there are a lot of emotions swirling around this number one related to, to the coronavirus. We're in the middle of a huge budget crisis. Um, you know, obviously on, on the individual level, the jobs aren't there. The, the, the federal level aid isn't there. Um, and, and, you know, if you look at major property tax changes in this city in recent years, I mean, going back to 2019, a huge story um, was the, the, the property tax reassessments where um, thousands of people throughout the city saw their um, property values go up by 50% or double, some even tripled. Residents. Um, and then earlier this year, Orleans Parish tax assessor cut um, commercial property values, some in half due to the coronavirus and businesses struggling during the coronavirus, which is understandable, but that same cut was not extended to residents. So I, I think, again, the major frustration here is, is residents have seen their bills rise, um, have seen their tax bills rise, which you know trickles down to, to, to renters as well. Meanwhile, we've seen a lot of commercial tax breaks. And, and anyway, I think that the Folgers, um, I think that this issue is coming up in the context of all of that, all these commercial um, property tax cuts that are in theory meant to spur economic development, although the proof isn't quite there. Meanwhile, no one seems to pause or, or think twice when it comes to raising taxes on residents. I think you're right. I think this this uh, this this has been a theme of the last few years. Um, you know, ITEP has been has been a controversy for a while. You know, last year and the year before, we were talking a lot about uh, tourism taxes, which were coming in and, and almost all of the tourism taxes were being funneled right back into the tourism industry once they were collected. As Michael said, the residence property bills keep going up and up and up. Um, we have one of the we have one of the highest sales tax rates in the country here. I think that the pandemic and the fact that we've seen a uh, hundred million dollars in cuts to uh, to the city's budget for next year. The fact that we're seeing things like furlough, you know, the, the fact that not not only is there is there very high unemployment because of the pandemic in the city, but uh, city government uh, city government is furloughing employees, threatening layoffs. It, it has reached a fever pitch at this point. I think this one public commenter really summed it up well at the Tuesday school board committee meeting uh, when he said, you know, I love smelling the roasting coffee when I drive over the bridge. And I think that's a feeling everyone shares.
But then he also said, you know, I pay my taxes and I think they should too. Thanks for that work, you guys. Good work um, together on that great story. Thank you. Thanks. And a quick update on this story. On Thursday night, the Orleans Parish School Board rejected all six of Folger's applications for the exemptions, and the New Orleans City Council voted down two property tax breaks and pushed their decision on four others into 2021. Michael, a story about facial recognition technology again in the news, emails obtained by the ACLU through a public records request. After reporting, I want to note, uh, done by you, put some light on the facial recognition software usage by the NOPD. Catch us up. What had they been saying and what is it that actually came to light through these emails? The city's current video surveillance system was really built in 2017. And at the time we added hundreds of publicly owned video cameras as well as the real-time crime center. And this idea of kind of constant, you know, uh, uh, video surveillance kind of that's when it was introduced to the city and and since that time there have been a lot of questions specifically about facial recognition um and basically every time that there's a question from the public um the answer that we've gotten is that no the city uh you know no we are not using facial recognition um often the city has pointed to a policy um within the real-time crime center itself um, saying that that facility will not um, employ facial recognition software However, the Real-Time Crime Center is not part of the NOPD. It's part of the uh, city's Office of Homeland Security and Emergency Preparedness. Um, now, what we found out recently is that while the city itself might not own any facial recognition software, it is using partnerships with the Louisiana State Police um, and the FBI um, to utilize their facial recognition software. Um, so that, that's where our reporting had started. And, and part of that reporting was that you know about a week earlier, a week before um, we had published, the ACLU had sent in a public records request to the city asking for any records, um, all communications, any memos, you know, pretty wide um, request um, having to do with anything related to, to facial recognition. The city responded to that public records request um, by saying, the police department does not employ facial recognition software. Um, they closed the request and didn't send back any documents. Then last week, the ACLU resubmitted that request. Um, and this time they, they ended up getting back some emails, not, not emails that were comprehensive to their request, but, but some more information about the program. From what we can see, um, you know, there were a few different cases where we were able to easily pinpoint um, you know, what kind of case they were investigating. One was a um, simple robbery. Another was a gun theft. The third case was actually pretty interesting. So in, in this third request that, um, so, so what we're seeing is that there, there is a formalized system in which an NOPD detective submits a request um, to the, um, it's called um, the, the Louisiana Fusion Center. Basically, you can make, you know, there's a formalized system, including, you know, forms that the state has put together for the local um, police forces. But, um, you know, it, again, a formalized system in which you make a request to the state to run facial recognition software on some photos that you have of someone you're trying to find. Um, now, according to that state form, you can be looking for a suspect. Um, you can be looking for a witness or a victim to a crime. Um, or the third category, you can be looking for somebody who's incapacitated and, and can't identify themselves. So maybe, if, you know, a body or someone who's unconscious or something like that. Um, now, in this third case that I was mentioning, 
an NOPD detective sends in a request to the state, but he doesn't mention what crime was committed or what case it's related to. Instead, he just describes, um, you know, who he's trying to identify here. And basically the story is that four men um, with video cameras in March um, rolled up to an NOPD, um, an NOPD station. And, and, and I don't, we don't really have all the details here, but what it's described in the email is um, they were bantering their usual rhetoric and uh, um, trying to incite officers. So it, the description to me sounds more like a demonstration or a protest than anything else, although I'm not really sure. Um, however, the detective was trying to identify the four individuals. Now, again, what, what stood out to me um, about this instance is that, again, there wasn't actually, um, they didn't actually cite any open case um, or um, say explicitly that any crime had been committed. Um, so again, this yeah. is what stuck out to me because is it just, we want to know who these guys are or, you know, and, and this is something we had reported in our last story, but there doesn't appear to be any policy at the local level about when NOPD detectives should be, you know, tapping these partnerships and using these services. Um, so again, you know, I'm not really sure what under what rubric um, you would want to find these four guys who showed up to an NOPD station. Yeah, there there was a there was an incident number attached to it. Um, I believe in the email we looked up the incident number through the NOPD's online database with the hope that we could at least take a look at a police report and get more uh, get more information. But when we looked it up, we saw that there was no police report written. It said necessary action taken, which is a disposition that means that there is no on ongoing investigation and that the matter is, uh, is, is disposed of. So there is another indication that there was no specific crime that was being charged or contemplated being, contemplated mm. being charged here. So, you know, using facial recognition in a case like that seems especially... Um, you know, could be especially troubling because it, there, there isn't even the justification of a crime. In addition, uh, we, we couldn't get any more detail on this because the NOPD declined to comment on this story. Right. When we last talked about this, you told us, Michael, that the city council was considering an, an ordinance restricting this type of technology, surveillance technologies and the like. What's the status of that right now? Yeah, so, so th this is um, an ordinance that the city council has been working on for a while, um, and it's kind of been watered down over time. Um, you know, it, it, it started off as this very comprehensive overall regulatory structure for surveillance technology in the city. And, it, and, it, and from there, it kind of, um, again, evolved to basically a blanket ban on, on uh, like three or four pieces of technology that the city council believes that the police weren't using anyway. Um, so one of them was facial recognition. So they had put this ban in the ordinance, kind of not expecting any issues um, to come up because, you know, again, we've been told for years that the city wasn't using this. Um, so that kind of derailed the ordinance for a bit. Um, now, a couple things have happened. Now, the, the, the ordinance is, is being sponsored by um, council, Councilman Jason Williams, who um, just won his election to become the next district attorney um, for Orleans Parish, um, which he'll do in January. Now, he was really the one pushing this forward. So, so now that he's won, um, kind of, you know, there, there were a number of criminal justice related, ambitious criminal justice related ordinances that he had been working on in the run up to this election. 
Um, and now um, today, actually, again, it's Thursday today. Um, a lot of them are on the agenda for today's city council. So um, I believe this is Jason Williams' last full city council meeting. So I think he's at least trying to get these heard. Um, so, you know, again, this wasn't something I was expecting necessarily this week. So um, I'm not really sure what's going to happen with that. But it, it sounds like it's going to be heard and at least discussed by the city council today. Traditionally, uh, it, you know, traditionally, as someone who covered council for a number of years myself, if something makes it onto the uh, uh, if, if something makes it into the quote unquote agenda highlights, which is the di which is an email that they send out on, on Wednesday evenings, that means a it's going to be heard. And, and B usually means it's going to pass. But in this case, I'm curious to see what happens because there was there was not complete buy-in for this surveillance thing from a number of the council members. So lots of big meetings today. You all will continue to follow it for us. Thank you, Michael. Thanks. And another update from the New Orleans City Council meeting on Thursday night. They deferred action on facial recognition software till 2021. You're listening to Behind the Lens, I'm Carolyn Heldman. My guests this week are Michael Isaac Stein, Marta Jusen, and Lens Editor Charles Maldonado. Hi, I'm Madeline Arufo, and I'm a freelance reporter for The Lens. Our mission is to educate, engage, and empower readers with information and analysis necessary for them to advocate for a more transparent and just governance that is accountable to the public. That takes time, and it takes resources. As a nonprofit, we count on donations to fund our work. Please consider helping us to do this important work by making a tax-deductible donation now at thelinsnola.org slash donate. Thank you for your support. All right, so the perennial favorite, a year in review. Charles, give us an overview of 2020 as far as journalism goes. Yeah, you know, it was a, it was a slow year news-wise. Um, you know, we just uh, we we were we were just calling it in most of the year. Uh, but uh, you know, obviously that's not true. We had one story, um, as everyone knows, that dominated everything for the year. And that was uh, the, the coronavirus epidemic. And every news organization had to, had to shift all of its resources into, uh, into covering the coronavirus. And the lens was no exception there. Um, you know, especially in the early part of the coronavirus, when I, I would say each of our staff members had some, you know, hopes and dreams about some ambitious projects that they were working on for later, uh, later on in the year, just kind of had to put Put all of that aside and, and and put everything into this coverage, which we did uh, started doing even really before it hit Louisiana, um, in a serious way at least. Our earliest COVID nineteen coverage was on the schools front. It started out as you know what are schools going to do should this come to Louisiana and should it become a serious problem. Very quickly turned into what are the one or two schools who are who are. Uh, seeing uh, students or teachers with, with cases, what are they doing now, to shortly after that, it turned into, well, when are all the schools going to close? What, what is happening now that the schools are closing? Schools coverage we did was, you know, it was keeping up with it really well. Um, I think that Marta did a lot of terrific coverage on 
uh, the various populations within the school system and how they were being affected by remote learning, which is obviously just a huge, huge issue. And as we got into the summer and fall, really keeping up with uh, both the Louisiana Department of Education and the Orleans Parish School Board about what they were going to, you know, how they were going to handle a reopening making sure we were regularly updated on on the, on the standards that they were considering and coming up with. Uh, and, and then as we got into the fall, we've had regular coverage on case counts uh, among teachers and students uh, as, as we've gone back into in-person learning. On Michael's Beat, we had terrific, uh, you know, obviously we had breaking City Hall coverage as events were unfolding, regular updates from the mayor, what was the city doing. But you know, on the city front and Michael's other beat, which is the, uh, which is, you know, uh, tourism and cultural economy, you know, we, we threw a lot of resources into how is this affecting the city's bottom line? What is that going to mean for employees? Um, on the employees, what about the employees who are continuing to work through, through this crisis, especially in the early days when we knew very little and it was very panicky? Um, you know, how is this affecting them? Are we seeing cases starting to pop up in places like the library where employees were, uh, were made to, to work in person far longer or at least weeks longer than, than most city hall employees. And then later we started to get into what is this going to mean for next year for the city and going forward. And Michael did, Michael was on top of the budget. On top of the budget, city budget starting in June, six months before um, you know it, it, it actually gets approved. As as we we moved into the to the fall, that all came to a head, and that came at the same time that the mayor was uh, was pushing the tax propositions that we talked about last week, including the one that was going to defund the library by forty percent. And I was extremely proud of the coverage that we did on that. I think I, I think we were the first, at least in the mainstream local media, that was really pointing out where the mayor was being less than honest and and what the actual effects of this would be. And you know, as we all know, that the, those tax propositions were were soundly defeated. Unfortunately, Nick Crastle, who is our criminal justice reporter. Uh, couldn't be with us today, but I think he was maybe the, the the prime example of what I was talking about earlier, where someone was in the middle of doing a very ambitious project that just had to be put on hold because of COVID-19. He, late last year, did a very big story that we partnered with a national outlet called The Atavist on that concerned a murder trial from the mid-80s. Um, the defendant was a gentleman named Aaron Hunter. But one of the interesting details was the judge who was overseeing it, which was a judge who presided in New Orleans for about 30 years. His name was Frank Shea. And his entire uh, MO was just moving cases through his court as quickly as possible. No matter the seriousness of the case, this Aaron Hunter case, which was a murder case, was over in, uh, I believe, like an afternoon. Um, and, and a lot of that had to do with Judge Shea moving these cases. So we took the Aaron Hunter story, we took this Frank Shea part of it, and we built it out into a multi-part series about the career and controversies of the Frank Shea tenure. And this was called the Section G Project. The first story in the Section G Project, I just looked back about a half hour ago, came out on March 5th. This, so this was literally days before the first case hit Louisiana. This was going to be, uh, you know, four or five part project. 
if I remember correctly, we were able to get out two stories before we had to shift everything over to COVID. Um, and then we put the Section G project on hold for several months and, and, and finished it out later in the year. But it, it was a great series. And it also came, came with a special podcast mini-series, the Section G podcast. I, I would say one of, the, one of the, the, the stories I would really recommend readers, if they missed it, go back and, and check is the Section G project. It was terrific. Um, and, then, and then, of course, you know, without missing a beat, when we had to put Section G on hold, Nick immediately uh, shifted to, to, to something that, that at that point really nobody else locally was covering, um, which was how, uh, how are jails and prisons going to deal with this, with this COVID-19 situation? Because it's, uh, you know, you've got, you know, everything we're being told is, is, is don't be around other people. Right. Uh, that un- that's unavoidable in a jail and prison. You've, you've got hundreds or even thousands of people in very close quarters. Nick was immediately on top of that, not only at the New Orleans jail, which saw several spikes, um, but uh, at state prisons, and notably, he had fantastic coverage of a major, major series of outbreaks at the uh, Oakdale Federal Prison in Oakdale, Louisiana. Um, Nick was in regular contact with inmates, with people uh, who worked there, who were talking to him, uh, you know, on the condition of anonymity, with former officials from the uh, the jail, from the prison guard union who gave him some great details about what they were hearing that was going on inside the jail and how, um, and how jail or prison officials were dropping the ball. Months after he did all of this reporting, there was a Department of Justice Inspector General report that, that basically found all the same things Nick had already found and, and really excoriated the officials at Oakdale and the, and the Federal Bureau of Prisons for how they were handling this uh, outbreak. Criminal justice was an, another one of our major highlights this year, and and again, I'm just uh, I'm I'm incredibly proud of what everyone has has done this year. This this has been a fantastic. This has been a horrendous year, but in, it it was handled fantastically by the reporters at the Lens. So I I thank all of them, including uh, Marta and and Michael who are here, Nick who is not, and our terrific freelancers, including our, our new health reporter, Philip Kiefer, he created a health beat this year as well. And uh, uh, people like uh, Madeline Arupo, who's recently done some, some terrific coverage on uh, the city's Wisner Trust, um, which was a big story for us as well. Thank you again to everyone. Marta, what about you? Highlights from the year? I mean, I think the thing everyone has stuck in their mind, like Charles said, uh, March 13th, right? I remember it. That's the day that the schools closed. And in the weeks leading up to it, we you know, we knew it was coming, but we didn't know how quickly um, it would happen. Um, but really, it was just every single day there, a new case or a school was, you know, cautiously canceling classes. And um, so I, I distinctly remember that date because we were all in the office together. And then uh, pretty much after that, we wouldn't be for the rest of the year. So. Right. Was it sort of exciting to be a journalist? Did you did you recognize how important the stories were going to be at the time? I mean, I, I think we absolutely knew that this was a historic moment to be a part of. Um, and, and I know that for everyone making those decisions that that was very difficult to be in that position. Um, I think teachers and families and students really have done incredible work this year. Um, I, I know they've been in a tough spot and to watch the school board and the schools figure out remote learning and how to reach different populations. Um, that has just been so much work for everybody involved. Um, but yeah, just looking back through everything, um, 
it was everything from virtual learning to then, you know, how quickly can we open, you know, summer camps or uh, a band or, you know, athletic activities before we open schools. Um, and I also think we're in a fairly unique situation because we do have kids back in school here um, and not every district has that, but we, we probably have the right population size to be doing it the way that we are. And also we know city officials have kind of put that first um, in terms of what, what they would close before closing schools again. You did some good work on access issues as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I feel like I'm sounding pretty rosy colored right now, but it's it's crazy to reflect back on the year. <laughs> no, that's okay. It's it's important to have a little bit of. I, I do think it, it's also interesting to think about how this is going to change things in the future. Um, being able to attend virtual public meetings is something I'm really interested to see how that changes going forward and to comment virtually and you know this is sort of it sort of expanded access for the public while at the same time making it much more complicated. <laughs> so I'll be interested to see if we revert back or if that's a, something that we keep open. Um, obviously that's something that at the lens that we always have liked to focus on is access to public meetings. All right, Michael, how about you? What stands out? I've been reflecting on a few things. Um, I've definitely have been thinking about the first coronavirus related story I wrote. Um, I think it was March 12th. Um, I was at a utility committee meeting and I had wanted to cover um, the city passing a renewable portfolio standard. I don't know if you remember this, Charles, but it was the same day that Sewerage and Water Board um, said that it was going to, to um, suspend service shutoffs during the coronavirus emergency. And I actually, I think I fought you, Charles, and I still wanted to write about the renewable portfolio standard. I don't think at the time it had, it had um, set in for me how overwhelming that was going to be. But, you know, that, that's made me think about a lot of the stories that we've had to drop. And, um, you know, none, none of those things went away um, is the thing I've been thinking about, mm. right? You know, as the cloud of the coronavirus lifts, I mean, those things are going to rush back. And, and, you know, the things that were getting worse are going to be worse than they were, you know, when we were reporting that on them in February 2020. Um, so I've been thinking about that. Michael brings up a good point here, which is that, you know, some things we did have to drop, and in, in, in the perfect world, Michael, we would have been able to cover the, uh, the, the renewable portfolio and the coronavirus story that day, but obviously we're a tiny staff. We, we only have, you know, one Michael Isaac Stein who can be at these meetings at a, at, at a time, and, you know, we had to, we had to shift in that, in that particular instance, but the world has continued to march on. The things that were happening before the coronavirus kept on happening. And, and one of the things that I think was also really great in terms of our coverage this year was we kept up with the stories that we were working on that were important before COVID-19. Marta, you know, I think as most of our readers know, did terrific coverage of the big graduation scandal at Kennedy High School. Mm. That, continued, that story is still ongoing, and Marta's been on top of it. Michael was was for a long time covering uh, the city surveillance system, which we're talking about today because Michael has continued to cover that story with every new development. Um, you know, Nick, his, his big story other than Section G this year was going to be the DA's race, and he kept right on top of the DA's race, right doing some of the best coverage in the city on the, on the candidates who were running. So that's something that I think is, is also important to note beyond the really great COVID coverage that you guys did. Also in thinking about... COVID coverage, I mean, the other thing I've been thinking about is that we're not, when the year ends, we're not done reporting on 2020. I mean, th these mm -hmm. are things that we're going to have to be reported. I mean, I, I don't think that 
as well as I think New Orleans media performed, I think that like j- just looking at the plain fact that I don't think that there are enough reporters in this city enough. At least there aren't enough, you know, full time paid um, reporter positions in this city. Um, you know, I don't know if we got everything, if that makes sense. I don't know if every change in city government, every, you know, position that's been cut. I don't know if we really know the full effects of that yet. Um, you know, I look back to our story about the Office of Business and External Services, the way they reshuffled all of these city departments into one kind of business-oriented department. And, you know, I'm wondering if there have been other structural changes that, you know, maybe we would have gotten in a different year, but we didn't get this year. So I think the reporting is not done yet. Um, and, um yeah, of course, we're going to be feeling the effects of this for the long for a long time. So I think you're going to see the word coronavirus for, you know, decades when we talk about certain public institutions that aren't performing well or investments that weren't made. You know, it's going to be something that we come back to over and over and over. Can I ask you, Charles, or maybe anyone that wants to about the overall work we do and how important it is and how um valuable it is in a community like this to have an organization like the lens i think the lens really showed its value this year and its value has always been as part of a continuum of news gathering in this city where we've seen a disinvestment in serious particularly investigative coverage from the major media outlets over the years so the lens exists um not to be something like the paper of record, but it exists to look in the places that the other people are not looking. Um, and, 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 and none of this is to disparage uh, the great work that they do at the Times-Picayune, that they do at, at, at our local TV stations and, and public radio station. It's just that we are looking in the areas that they don't always have the resources to look, look in when, when they're going after the major, you know, the major front page stories of the day. Some, some of these things just involve, you know, sort of making a conscious effort to look in the other direction. Some of these things just involve a willingness to dig into something that seems dry and boring, but, but really is very important and not at all boring. And that is where the lens does its best work. And this year we continued to do it in spite of all the difficulties we had. I think I can't speak for, for everyone else. Well, I sort of can because I keep up with all of you regularly. I think there was, you know, especially at the very, at, at the, at, in, in the spring surge in New Orleans, there was probably, a, you know, a good two, if not three months where I don't think any of us on editorial, on the editorial staff had even a full day off. It was exhausting and it was terrifying for us just like it was terrifying for everybody else but ultimately we recognized it was our responsibility and if we hadn't proved our value to the city in the past i think we certainly did this year i think the lens has always been particularly important for new orleans in the charter school scene because we're a very unique city and what the school board is doing is not necessarily what is happening everywhere and we have always been willing this is how i got started at the lens in 2011 and you know i left for a little while but i came back We've always been willing to go to the charter school level, which sometimes is only a school of 300, 400, 500 kids, but that school matters both to those people, those families, those teachers, and the city. 
the fact that we are willing and able and don't have to write district-wide stories all the time, I think is very, very important to the city and was very important in coronavirus response um, because this affected schools in so many different ways, just based on what their resources were to we had schools over the summer, this seems like a really long time ago, um, that weren't going to be able to get their immersion teachers because the French government said, we're not sending our teachers over to the U.S. during this pandemic um, because you guys can't guarantee jobs. So just these very unique stories that um, because we're willing, able, and we have this you know, unlimited space uh, to dig that deep into individual schools, you know, those are stories for us, and we know that they're stories for our community. I'm very thankful for my job with The Lens, and I'd, I'd also uh, ask people to reach out and support us if they can this year. Yeah, I'll, I'll add on to that as well. I think that there's there, there's a few things. I mean, there's a lot I love about the lens, and there's a lot of reasons I think it's vital, vital for, for the, the city. Um, I'll just name two of them now. I think one thing that I've always been impressed with about the lens is that it, it's not just what the lens chooses to cover, but it, it seems that as a publication, we, we focus on why stories are important. We, we, I think we always chase stories for the right reasons and we see through, you know, to why these things are important to the community at large. And again, that's something starting all the way up from Karen, Charles, Marta. I mean, I've learned from everyone here and, and really knowing why you're going to report on something and why it's important to the community is, is something that's always impressed me about the lens. The other thing I'll say about my role specifically is that I, I felt for a long time prior to this pandemic, a lot of what I was doing is chasing stories that, that other people weren't focusing on or, or extending, you know, basic news coverage into more investigative deep dives. And, and I think all of that coverage was always vital. But over the past year, it's not just chasing, you know, the, the harder stories or the more complicated stories. I mean, there are basic stories that are falling through the cracks in this city and, and that we've been able to catch and make sure that, you know, they don't go unreported. And, and so I think that we've stepped up um, as a, a major backstop for, for, again, just basic vital news um, where, I mean, Marta has always been, you know, that kind of core education reporter in the city, at least that's the way I've seen it. But, um, you know, again, there was so much news this year and, and, and like we've talked about, will continue to be that there are just basic stories that, that we have to add our capacity to in order to make sure they're covered. And um, again, these are, we've always been covering essential news. I think that, you know, our mission has just become all that more essential as more news pops up. Please support The Lens if you can. If we could add another reporter, you have no idea the world of difference that could make. Well, on behalf of all the readers, I will say thank you to all of you for the work that you did this year. Here we go into a new year, and I know you all will continue to do the great work that you do. And thanks for spending time with me on this podcast. It's been fun. Thank you. Thanks, Carolyn. Thank you. This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. Thanks to our guests this week, Marta Jusen, Michael Isaac Stein, and Lens editor Charles Maldonado. You can read all the week's other news along with opinions at our website, thelensnola.org. Thanks for listening. Happy holidays.